Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Mark Blakey, who is an engineer by background, turned entrepreneur, turned data scientist, and he started and ran his own technology company for 20 years, uh, where they created data-driven products for uh, banks, large banks in Australia and overseas. And after he had a successful exit from that business, and after his early retirement, I guess, uh, he's gone back into into coding and into machine learning and uh, back into programming himself and um, with applications into finance and stocks. So we, we talk about that um, towards the end. What we discuss with Mark is um, around running small teams that deliver more value than, than what you would expect from them. So the ones that uh, punch above their weight, uh, how uh, an entrepreneur and a leader of data science teams has to create the vision uh, to help people, uh, to guide people and help them do their job the best possible way. Uh, we talk, talk about how data science can help uh, scale products um, and also uh, what is the foundational knowledge that you need on machine learning before being able to lead um, teams like this. Uh, it's a really great conversation and I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores and I'm sitting here with Mark Blakey. Thank you very much for coming in today, Mark. A great pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to, uh, to be speaking with you. So um, obviously you have a, a, long, a long trajectory in the field and now you're giving back to the community. I'm really interested to see uh, where, where did you get started in, in this field, into data science? Well, I originally trained as an electrical engineer and subsequently went on to do a PhD in uh, computer science. I was interested in starting my own company, mm-hmm. so I became something of a businessman and an entrepreneur. Uh, over time, I got more and more attracted to uh, data science. I guess it appealed to my engineering instincts and my aspirations of you know, extracting knowledge uh, from data. And um, over time, I got more and more interested in how I could use uh, data science to rigorously um, automate uh, stock selection. I got interested in stock market investment. Uh, and, and so I got quite excited about the potential of taking a stats-based approach and coming up with solutions that were you know, scalable, uh, repeatable, transparent in the sense I could understand why it was doing what it was doing. Exactly. Mm. Oh, that's really great. Mm. And how did you find the, the transition from being an engineer to an entrepreneur in the first place? It was in 
interesting. Uh, I realised that um, working in traditional companies, you know, I, I was never going to meet my objectives of um, the degree of excitement and control and the freedom <laughs> to the sort of career I really wanted, you know, and also the returns that I could get financially from it. Mm -hmm. And so I was struggling to find a way of um, starting my own company. Yes. And I think what a lot of people have found, I, I, I found that if you build a product, if you solve a problem for yourself, it's going to be of interest to other people too. Yes. Uh, back then, my interest was in, uh, in investment properties. I, I wrote what was, what was essentially a pretty simple mortgage calculator and then realized that that might be of interest to other people too. And in the end, I ended up building a business around that. Great, great. <laughs> That's really good. Mm. And did you originally build the, uh, the mortgage calculator with, with the aim to, um, that it could someday turn into a business? I, I sort of had it in the back of my mind. Mm. It, it was at a time when we were transitioning into what a sort of modern Windows type um, interfaces for things. And so I was interested in exploring, uh, first of all, the technology and learning to program in it mm. and seeing how I could explore data visualizations of financial scenarios. And I find that really interesting, you know, like things like using a uh, loan as a way of funding your lifestyle by um, paying back more than you have to when you can so that you can draw it back to fund other contingencies and lifestyle choices in the future. Yes. Anyway, it wasn't too long before people said to me, you know, banks could use this. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I thought, well, that's an interesting possibility. So I started calling on banks. And at first they said, nah, that's not a bad idea, but if it did this and it did that and it did a few other things as well, it could be of interest to us. So I took notes, went and wrote more software and eventually got to a point where they said, hey, we'll buy that. So that was my business for, for, for a while. That is excellent. Yeah. And when, when were you working on this? Oh, this was quite a few years ago now. Yes. And I sold this business um, some time back and then I had um, more time free. I thought, well, I can be retired. And I thought, well... I'm not sure if I want to be retired. So I got more yes. seriously interested in the stock market investment that I mentioned before. Yes. At that time, my approach was that, uh, no, first of all, I had to select a style of investment and that led me into one that was um, much more informed about individual companies. So I would, I would research companies, I would prepare complex spreadsheets on each individual company, looking at it, um, you know, its financials, its balance sheet, its uh, profit and loss statements and so forth, looking at its history and forming opinions about it. I would read the company reports. Yes. And all of this stuff is so time consuming and yes. I was doing it on a company by company basis. In the end, I was just overwhelmed. I was thinking my life is now a stock analyst. <laughs> I am so bored. <laughs> I just don't want to do this anymore. Yes. And it was a little while later when I was becoming aware of new technologies like uh, machine learning in particular in uh, data science. And I thought, you know, this has got to have a wonderful potential. I didn't even know that quantitative finance existed then, right? And I became more and more interested in quantitative finance. And then in particular, taking the newer algorithms that, that were starting to become mainstream of um, AI and, and machine learning in particular, to say, I think we could do something here. I'm going to have a go. I'm going to, and it's a bit like when I wrote my mortgage calculator yes. all, all that time ago. You know, I'm writing because I have a need, I have an interest to say, what can I make this technology do? Uh, and, and so I've, I've, I've been doing that. I started out, I didn't know anything about machine learning. You know, these days it's so easy to, to educate yourself taking the um, online courses. I went to Coursera. Great. Uh, the course that I recommend for anyone starting out in the space is, you know, the Roll Gold one, you probably know, and Andrew Ng at um, Stanford. Yes. It's a wonderful start to get uh, up to speed in the basics of machine learning. 
uh, and I've been going ever since, uh, further developing my staff. That's fantastic. Oh, I um, have so many questions for you. Um, yeah, especially, I think the areas that, that you've covered from, you know, from engineering to entrepreneurship to data science, finance and, yeah. and quantitative finance, all, all really, really interesting. And, uh, and I want to dive deeper into, into a few of them to yeah, see sure. what were the, some, of the, some of the lessons that, uh, that you, do, you took from, I guess, from each of the periods and, and how they, they started to come together. Uh, the, uh, tell me about the, the entrepreneurship years and I think, I think what, you, what you did of, um, of I guess, what's, what's now called customer development in terms of building a product where you're scratching your own itch mm. and mm. then going to the customers and mm. saying, what do you guys think? Yep. And they give you suggestions saying, yeah. give me this, give me that. Yeah. That, that is... It's um, a sort of market research in a way of engaging the customer to say, tell me what's wrong with my product. What would you want it to do to, to meet your needs? So that was a bit, a very different to what I'm doing now because mm. what, what that was about was creating some software that was effectively the shop window for my customer. And my customer would be a big bank, right? So they would uh, put that um, at the point of engagement with the customer. So, in, you know, in, in those days, a customer would go into the branch of a bank, a building society or another financial institution. Uh, and of course, it morphed over time and I was doing that to be an online sales pitch rather than an in-person sales pitch. So the tools had to adapt to different technologies in the in space of time. But what it was all about was demonstrating how financial products could integrate into people's lives and why that particular product was the one that people should go with. And it was a really interesting time that I was doing this. Yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds really good. Mm. And did you find that people were open, the customers were open to, to those conversations? Um, My the, customers? Your, your yeah. potential customers? They yeah. were really interested in this because uh -huh. uh, at, at the time that there wasn't very much uh, going on. A, a couple of the banks were starting to take initiatives in that area and the rest of them wanted to play catch up. Yes. And it's interesting, one of the really important learnings that came out of this mm -hmm. for me and I think will be of interest to your uh, listeners, is that small teams can really punch above their weight. Um, the banks that I was selling to have massive R&D resources and massive IT departments, but what they lack was a vision as to what it is they could do that would make their customers happy and give them a reason to buy. And so specialist little companies like mine um, could create a niche that, that didn't exist and really dominate that niche by um, being able to say, well, you know, I'm interested in data science and data visualization and I'm interested in this product. And basically, I want to show customers how they can uh, be debt free sooner and save uh, themselves a lot of interest along the way. So that, that gave me um, you know, a very concrete theme. It was all very graphically oriented that um, would, would take it forward. I think moving it forward though to you know, where we are today, um, in many ways the challenges and the opportunities aren't that different. That, you know, if you want to build a great data science team, don't be an empire builder, keep it small. <laughs> because uh, one of the things I noticed um, that in my clients and in my former career is that as teams grow, things go haywire. You spend so much energy and time 
in team management and coordination team politics. Uh, and you end up having uh, a huge amount of your productive time doing nothing more than having team meetings instead of actually producing productive content. So keep it lightweight was a really important principle. Yes, mm. I, oh, I completely agree. I completely <laughs> agree. I've definitely seen that happen uh, too many times. And, mm. and, and often teams become a, a victim of their own success. Yep. You know, they're, they're small and nimble and, and punching above their weight. Mm. And that gives them more work, more recognition. The team grows. And then, um, yeah, often it, it loses the, its, its way. Mm. Um, and how... So that's, that's really interesting. Having the vision to solve problems that, that a big company wasn't really uh, able to focus on or wasn't really focusing on, but a problem that they had and, and solving that with, with, a small, with a small team. How did you maneuver through the big companies and, um, and keeping your team size small and, and nimble? I'm sorry. Oh, essentially, the way that you're dealing with the, with the customers on one side and, and then the, the technical side um, inside your business, mm -hmm. uh, how did you find working those, those two worlds of working with large corporations and having a small team that, that was able to be nimble? Well, it, it, it's, it's a tough gig because you, you've, you've got to have a vision of something to sell mm -hmm. and be able to communicate that and also be detail-minded enough to produce quality product and software that works reliably and, and gives a large institution something of the uh, bulletproof quality that they need to be able to use it with confidence. Uh, and, and so, it, you know, it, it was tough and it was challenging for me to discover how to do that. When I started to do that, I was just, um, and, you know, an engineer who'd worked in various companies. I, I didn't have any experience of uh, managing people, creating products, doing the marketing, doing the sales. So I was making it up as I went along. And it, it all just kind of, kind of worked for me. That's excellent. Mm. That is so good. Mm. And did you find that... Um, that the entrepreneurship uh, mindset and, and the, the time that you spent uh, doing that work, did it, did it teach you about, did it teach you principles that you could apply in data science? Did it make you a, a better data scientist? I, th I think the two things that I did in my life that made me successful at projects, first mm -hmm. and foremost, were my PhD. Mm -hmm and my experience in starting my business. Now, talk about my PhD first, and the reason that is that in order to succeed and to get a, you know, um, a, a thesis of equality that, that will be accepted, it creates a sort of study and, and, and mindset pattern of way of self-critiquing your, your, your work and of producing work of a high enough quality to take original thinking and to be able to develop it in a way that you can a a achieve results that I have used time and time again in all of the projects that have followed. So um, for anyone who's wondering if a, if a PhD is useful, yeah, for me it has been. Oh, also good credentialing uh, when I was going out into the marketplace as a consultant and taking product um, forward as well. But to me the main value of it was in um, thinking patterns that I acquired in doing it. And as you say, the process of actually um, being an entrepreneur, uh, it, it, I mean, I, I found, and I, I guess this is a bit of a cliche that everyone finds, that it's mainly being tenacious, putting in the effort and the hours, um, you know, it's 5% inspiration and 5% vision, 
a 90% effort. And there's a lot of failures and knockbacks along the way. Uh, people who either don't want to know or don't understand what you're doing or don't value it or, or don't get it and, or, or your product frankly just isn't good enough yet and you have to keep, keep going and going until it resonates with a user community. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, what, I, what I found as well and it's, and it's, it's a tough gig and often it's a, it's a lonely gig as well. Yes, it can be. Yeah, that's why I, I enjoyed, you know, originally I was a one-man band and because I was working in a niche that I'd created, I, I didn't have confidence to go and start hiring people because I never thought, well, will, will another bank ever buy the software I'm writing? I have no idea. Yes. And, and it wasn't until I could feel confident in that and see that there was a trajectory where it was going to continue that I'd start to build a team um, and invest in that around it. And that was actually a lot of fun, putting a team together and managing that and keeping it going. It was a lot of effort and it was hard work, yes. but it was fun. That's, yes. that's really good. That is really good. Mm. Um, and how, who was doing most of the, the customer contact and how did you guys stay customer focused in the, in the request? Oh, and, and the reason why I asked that question is, is to see whether you found a, a discrepancy between what people asked for and what people actually wanted. Uh, not that they were trying to um, be malicious or anything or lead you down the wrong path, but in the sense that if, if a customer doesn't know, and this can be any stakeholder, if they don't know what, uh, what software can do or data science can do, sometimes they ask for, for something to say, give me a, a dashboard, for example, when what they really need is insights. Yeah. Did you find that? And well, I think if, if I just invented the dishwasher and I took it to market or to focus groups and said, tell me what you need in your kitchen, they would never have come to me and said, I need a dishwashing machine. Yes. No? And they wouldn't understand it and they would be skeptical about it and they would reject the concept. And I, I found this in my software as well. When I had an idea of I want to create a product that does this or I want to extend my functionality into a new area, if I made the mistake of going to talk to my existing clients and saying, hey guys, this is what we're thinking of doing, what do you reckon? They'd, they'd be really discouraging about it. You know? And that they would say, well, but they just wouldn't react. You know, they, they, they didn't get it, they had no imagination, they couldn't take it on board. And there was no, not even serious discussion. If we then went ahead and built that and took it to them, They'd say, wow, that's amazing. That is so exciting. How soon can we get it? So, yes. uh, you know, asking your customers what they want probably isn't the way of finding the next great thing. You know, you've, you have to have another way of generating the idea. That the vision doesn't come from that. That's going to apply in data science that we're working in now as well. So if you look at what I'm doing now, you know, I'm building machine learning based um, stock market prediction um, software, okay? Uh, totally different to what I was doing before. And essentially, having retired from my last business, having sold it all, I'm back to being a one-man band. And after a gap of something like 20 years, I've gone back to writing software. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't write any software for a very long time. You know, I hired a team of professionals who would do that for me while I got on with running my business. Um, and now I'm kind of back where I was then thinking, I don't actually know whether this can work, so I'm going um, I'm, I'm to be my own software development team until I have confidence that 
it, it functions. The other thing I discovered is it's really easy to spend a lot of money um, on, on, on an activity that will produce absolutely nothing. No, yes. you, know, you know, I think you've worked in banks, you, you'll have seen that yes. where um, decisions are made to have a go at things that are eventually abandoned because they're not productive. I made those mistakes too and developed lots of products. I mean, I would have developed hundreds of products in, 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 in my business, but it would be maybe 10 or 20 that produced all the revenue. And, and the others were interesting things we explored that, that eventually went nowhere. That happens so much. So much, mm. so much. And I think, um, yeah, definitely in, in entrepreneurship and I think a lot in data science as well. I think it's, it's something that is, is often misunderstood by, by managers of data science teams or stakeholders that, are, um, that don't have much of an exposure to data science beforehand. It, it's a rare concept for them that you can do a project that may not give you an answer or yeah. may not lead to, yeah. to an outcome. Well, the more interesting projects are the speculative ones where we're having a go, you know, to say, can we make this work? But there's generally no guarantee that we can. And often, you know, and it can be painful to say, oh, guys, you know, this, this really isn't going to work out and it, it's better to, to just give up. We'll find something more productive to do. That's right. Mm. And um, did you find any, any problems dealing with people that had the expectation that every every project was going to work out or or did you find ways that you could well, explain look for the people who were working with me and for me you know yes. it's very much a learning experience for them uh because maybe they haven't been in situations like that but they have an expectation that the company has commissioned them to work on an activity to write a piece of software and they will expect to see it through to completion but when it's becoming clear um, that it just isn't going to work for a variety of reasons, technical reasons, or uh, that the market base for it really isn't there. And, and management needs to make a decision to say, well, actually, we're going to abandon this activity. And we've given it a go. We've, you know, we've put in place metrics to as assess how we're traveling, and it's not performing. Mm. Um, you, you will now be redeployed on something else. There'll be resistance from that because people have a natural desire to finish a piece of work, to see it through, there's this personal satisfaction involved, yes. and they just don't like it. Yes. But that's one of the things that I had found, found challenging to communicate is saying, well, no, I have a business need, business objectives. That is why we're all here. It isn't about the personal satisfaction in, in, in uh, following that particular suite through to completion. And now we need to move on to other things. Oh, I, I could not agree more mm. um, so much. So a, a lot of times with, um, with data science teams in, in general, I have seen that people essentially over-engineer solutions yes. and they like to spend a lot of time oh, yes. crafting yeah. something. Yes. So uh, the, uh, the, other, the other thing I've discovered too, you know, particularly when we're doing something that isn't proving that, that we are, we're taking the risk of a speculative um, activity. You've got to have a lean approach. You've got to find a way of being able to rapid prototype it. Um, leave out the bells and whistles. Just implement the essentials and find a quick and dirty path to prove a principle. Do it by the ugliest way you can as long as you get a quick result. And, and, and prove that the concept is valid. Then we can put in all the stuff to put in, you know, to, you know, to make it solve problems in general, to make it scalable, to make it robust, to make it of a professional quality, to 
put in the logging of what it did and the displays of the outputs that it produced. We don't need all that at first. We just want to know whether the idea has legs. And I've seen so many engineers and so many teams over-engineer at that point, you know, before they're ready, before we know whether the idea is any damn good. That's right. That's right. Mm. And how, how did you find the, the discipline or how were you able to discern between what would be the, and, the bells and whistles and what would be the, the core functionality or something that should be tested first? Well, it's like putting a ruler through something and mm -hmm. just saying, you know, you've, you've got to have a simple test of what is it, what is your core functionality that matters here, you know, what, and, and pair it back to the absolute minimum function subset that you need to establish that there's something in this, you know, before we go further and build all the fancy stuff, is the activity worth doing? Uh, and I think as, as an entrepreneur and as a business person too, to have a well-articulated metric to bring to the table at the start, to mm -hmm. say, this is what I want to achieve, you know, and this is how I'm going to judge how we're going, and to revisit it often as the days and weeks and months progress. That's really good. Yeah. And what, what would be some of some example metrics that you've used in the, in the past? They, look, they differ so much and yes. very specific to the nature of uh, the project. I don't, I don't actually think I can generalize about that. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand. Because one, um, one thing that I, that I always look for when take, starting a new project and, and taking a lean approach, which I'm, I'm a huge, huge mm. fan of, is uh, I look for, for the demand, right? Whenever there's, there's that pull where you find the product market fit, yep. where you're building something and then eventually you hit what customers actually want. Yep. And then the, the doors seem to be opening a lot easier than yeah. before. People are much more engaged in the conversation or you discuss uh, the features of your product or the type of analysis that you're doing and you get to see the white in their eyes as, as you're speaking with them. Yeah. Um, the, the main one that, that I've looked for in the past in my experience has been that, that demand or that product market fit. And before getting a, a sense that we have hit that, I generally spend as little time as possible in building the solutions and, yeah, and exactly what you're saying. With you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is that is so good, and I think that there there needs to be uh, personally my personal view is is um I think that there needs to be a, a lot more of this type of mindset in in data science mm. um, from at least from what I what I've seen um, people take more the the engineering approach and they like to yeah over engineer things and the quick and dirty part. Well, is great. data science is a bit special and different to a lot of other projects in mm -hmm. that. It is possible to come up with performance metrics for how well a data science algorithm um, is performing. So if we look at, say, machine learning, and now I think about the activity that I'm working on at the moment, you know, the basics of machine learning, what we're doing when we're training um, an algorithm, let's, let's take um, a neural network as an example, you know, we're trying to minimize error we're looking at a sample set of data, um, we're doing trial classifications against known results if it's you know, supervised learning. And it's a bit like you know, a least squares type thing, it's, it's different, but it, it's a bit like that in a regression that we're just trying to minimize the error between the predictions we make by the coefficients we put in our, you know, our uh, neural networks and the, 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 the weightings on the links. Um, and, and what the actual data was. 
Well, I don't think that that's actually the metric that applies to the projects. You know, when we're actually making our neural network do something, we have a view whether it's recognising a cat or a number plate or classifying a stock as likely to go up in value over the next year or whatever our domain is. There are other metrics that are more important to us than on how well we've trained um, and minimised the error in, in the thing. So those metrics can be pretty hard to find and take a lot of deep thought and domain expertise to identify. There are lots of candidates we can come up with. Um, when we add on to that the special challenges that we have in something like machine learning, is that if I just stay in that corner of data science for a minute, you know, mm -hmm. we do a lot of training with in-sample data, right? And then for this to be useful and interesting, we want it to be able to work on data we've never seen before. So we want to say that what we've seen in the past is reliably representative of what we're going to deal with in the future, the so-called out-of-sample. This is where things spectacularly tend to fall over in the real world. People make all sorts of mistakes in, in training uh, their network. They, they, they may overtrain on the set of data that they've used uh, for supervised learning to the point where it's learnt that set real well, but that set isn't sufficiently representative of everything else that can happen in, in real life. And so the moment they start applying it to cases they haven't seen before and they say, well, how did it go? And, you know, it's awful. It's just awful. So when we're looking for performance metrics, something that can take into account what we're doing, that will that can change you, cause you to change how you design your approach. You know, you, any data science project like that is going to have a degree of backtesting built into it, and it's going to make you think about how you quarantine and partition the data that you have available for the training, and you want to keep some of that in reserve to be kind of out of sample data that you can use while you're still doing your training to assess how it's going. So, you know, in my work, I find metrics based on that. But those metrics aren't obvious. And I think they'll be very sensitive to the problem that you're solving and the domain that you're working in. And you'll have to work them out on a bespoke uh, basis for every project that you tackle. That's right. That is exactly right. Have you found that in your experience? Yes, that definitely you need to, to be looking what, um, what's going to make the most difference um, to your, I guess, to your business outcome. And, and yeah, I've seen a, a, a lot of times people want to stay in the, in the technical metrics that help them maybe optimize a model or you know but it doesn't it doesn't often or sometimes it doesn't help towards the business objective so trying to to create a strong link between how, what moves us forward um, in in value uh, from a business perspective create a strong link to what what do we need to um, to optimize for on, well, on machine a, learning it's an interesting point I mean go back to the training of a neural network to do something so what we're doing is, you know, we've got some arbitrary architecture. We don't know necessarily how many layers we need or how many um, neurons we need in each layer. Yes. And we've got all these initially random weights connecting them all. Okay. So we put it through a training process. And every time we do this, we're going to come up with a different set of link weights. That's guaranteed to be different because the way you train a neural network, you start with random link weights. 
And so the initial state will influence your final position, that the weights, that at, at the end of training you say, it's now trained well enough that the error is now acceptable, I will stop training, and you will wind up with a set of links. Now, if you did it again immediately, you'll come up with a different neural network. It might have a different architecture, it will certainly have different link weights. Uh, are these networks that you can generate on each occasion equivalent? They all do the same job, and they will all produce, we think, similar classification accuracies, or will they? So how do we select amongst all the candidates that we can generate? What's your experience? And for us, um, well, what I've done in the past is generally take um, more times than not more than one approach, more than one um, type of algorithm that in the end we, we generally end up creating an ensemble of <laughs> different, different algorithms. Basically voting on, on how they all perform. Yes, that's so right. If you don't pick one, you take a whole bunch of them. Correct. Mm. How, how have you done it in the past? Depending again on the particular problem, I've, I've found a metric to say I like one best amongst all of them and I've tested in a variety of ways. Uh -huh. Sometimes an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, and there's times where you're going with, with one. Yes, that's really good. That's really good. And did you, but by the way, did you do your, um, your PhD in, in neural networks or in machine learning space? Well, when I did my, um, my PhD, uh, machine learning was at, it was in its infancy, you know, yes. artificial intelligence was in its infancy. It's, it's really only in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years that machine learning has become a mature enough um, technology for it to be viable to apply to real world problems, you know, and, and you know, I did my PhD a lot longer ago than that. So, uh, no, I, I worked in a completely different area, but yeah. it, it is interesting though, just to reflect on how fast things are moving and how mainstream um, machine learning is, is now becoming and that we're seeing um, libraries, APIs, functionality being offered as in a pre-packaged way. One of the things that I've discovered, and I'll talk about how I discovered this in a minute, yes, is the readiness with which people will accept a new technology like machine learning and just apply it without bothering to understand what machine learning really is, how it works, and where the limits of its applicability lie. And I think that's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. And I never, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, please, please continue. Well, you know, um, in the middle of last year, 2017, I created a uh, meetup group in Melbourne. Uh, I'll just talk about that for a moment, yes, if I may. Please. So it's called um, Machine Learning Applied to Stock Market Prediction. That really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It's a nice piece of marketing. But I wanted to be very specific about what that group was about. And what I was interested in seeing is who else in, in my environment is around working in, in similar problems and what they're doing and what their approaches are. Um, and what I've come across is that there are a lot of people who are tending to gravitate towards technical trading, you know, trend-based time series analysis. And they, they will use machine learning, but 
they tend not to have any great depth of expertise in it. So they, they just find um, a, a package that, well, you know, here is a neural network, this is, this is what you do to use it. You just throw some data at it, it trains itself, it gives you results. Now, I think that's really dangerous. You know, I think there's the risk of the rubbish in, rubbish out syndrome here. Um, machine learning isn't easy to use successfully, uh, particularly to an area like that. Uh, the um, idea of applying that sort of predictive technology or classification technology to markets is at best brave and certainly dangerous because markets are influenced by many factors that are external to the market. It's hard enough to apply machine learning well to a problem that always behaves the same way. For example, if we're building driverless cars, we know that when the vector of inputs about how the car's traveling, the speed it's moving at, what gear the engine's in, the, the tilt of the steering wheel, and all the other input parameters are, you know, we know the car will always perform the same physics and move in the same way with the same stimulus. When we're trying to make predictions about the stock market, it isn't like that because you know, a piece of economic news comes out or a war starts or an interest rate changes. Uh, we get panics and surges that modulate um, the price of all the stocks um, at once. But, you know, interestingly, it doesn't affect all companies the same way at the same time or even all sectors in the same way. And so being able to understand this and adjust for it is really hard. So if you just go and take um, some prepackaged solutions and say, well, I'll, I'll just make predictions based on this and it'll be fine. Um, these, these predictions break down, you know, that they're not, they're not sound. And if you don't train it in the right way, uh, avoiding the problems of overfitting and underfitting just at a really basic level, is really, really hard. Now, I don't know how successful these projects are going to be. That's right, and uh, I completely, yeah, co completely agree. And I think that there's there's two two elements there that um, I would like us to discuss because that this is sure. such a um, such an interesting topic. So on one side is is the the knowledge of machine learning at a at a sufficient depth that you're able to apply the the algorithms in a in a safe way, and by that I mean understanding where the strengths and weaknesses lie and how to look for overfitting and things like that. Uh, that's one, one side um, that I see from what you were saying, uh, so please let me know if, if I'm missing something. <laughs> and the other side, it might be a question of, of the data availability. Mm -hmm. So uh, in general, I, I, I tend to think of problems as, as a, a closed loop or an open loop uh, or a closed system and open system uh, problems, types of problems where uh, I've done some, for example, in the past, some work in, in mining where you're able to optimize the machine and the operation of the mine a lot better because you have control of all the variables. And I think that a, a self-driving car is, is close to, to mm. that uh, mm. type of system. While anything that involves humans, really, mm. <laughs> economics, stocks, yes. Uh, is more of an open, uh, open loop system. Oh, it is because you know markets are driven very much by human sentiment, by well, by fear and greed, and so it's fundamentally unpredictable in in, in those ways. Now that doesn't mean that we can't apply the technology in ways that are useful. 
We can. Yes. What we have to recognise, though, is that any classifications or predictions that we make are imperfect. And that introduces another layer of complexity, you know, that if we're going to come up with predictions that are only 60, 65, at best 70% right, yeah. what we really need then is a gambling strategy, a bit like a roulette player, because we've got to be able to uh, use these predictions that's going to produce an acceptable profit, but at an acceptable risk. Yes. And it's quite different to what you might do if you're applying uh, machine learning to um, analysing uh, customer behavioural patterns when uh, how they spend on their credit card or yes. what books or movies they might like to buy next and things like that. Where, um, there are some different and special problems here. Um, that's why I'm carefully feeling my way into this project to see whether or not um, it, it actually has potential. I mean, there are a lot of people who've, who've done really well in the quantitative um, finance space, and you don't have to use machine learning. I mean, I'm interested in, 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 in that as giving a new edge and an exciting way of doing things that have been done before. If you read books on uh, quantitative finance, they often come up with magic formulas where they might say, we, we look for companies where we, we take certain of their financials and we combine them in an equation with um, coefficients that we've somehow found yes. and add them up. Mm -hmm. And the ones that get over a threshold are the ones we like to buy. You say, okay, where'd the coefficients come from? Oh, we've just found through empirical research that these are the ones that give a nice result. And I'm saying, well, that's a great case for uh, machine learning automation. Uh, we have a lot of data, we have a lot of companies, you know, we can go and do that better now. Uh, this was something that was hand done, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, where they didn't have the technology we have now. So I want to revisit those sorts of things and say, well, what, what, what can we do with the data science tools that, that, that we have now? Yes. And, and is that similar to the, the differences that you see between the, the application of machine learning in, in finance and in stocks? versus some of the other applications that you were speaking about, like, like books and movie recommendations? I, I, I think in some ways those other problems are more straightforward because uh -huh. we don't have the vagaries of human emotion modulating um, what we can expect to happen. So it, it is pretty hard uh, to, to, to train a network um, where irrational behaviours are built into the histories that we're using in the training sets. And how can we expect our networks to account for that? And I mean, there are lots of things we can do. You know, we can change the uh, period that we look back in time as to what we consider to be a, um, an appropriate history to how something's going. But if we make it too short, you know, if, if, if we factor out a period of time since the last panic or the last surge in the market, then it's going to tell us about if we run the risk, it will give us a trivial answer about what happened in the last 10 minutes because we only looked at too small a time um, to, to be representative of um, the, the future that we're really interested in. Now, there are people that trade extremely profitable on it, short, uh, extremely short time frames. 
and there are people who, who, who look at extremely long term. So, I mean, at one extreme, mm -hmm. you've got the high frequency traders who, who regard earning a stock for 20 milliseconds as the long term. At the other extreme, you've got Warren Buffett, um, who, who might regard 20 years as a short term investment. So, you know, we've all got to find our taste as to where we want to be with this, uh, this, this stuff. Exactly. That's so interesting. And where, where in, the, in the spectrum do you sit? Well, I'm, I'm tending to uh, the longer term, I think. Yeah. Um, firstly, I'm lazy. I don't want to be trading every few milliseconds. I'd like to be trading no more than weekly. So I'd like to buy and hold things for one to three, maybe five years. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, that makes much more sense. There, there, there are a lot of traders who will, um, who will get in and out of a position in days or weeks. Correct. Um, and that does seem to be the norm. I don't know why, but mm -hmm. people seem to prefer that. That's true. That's true. And, and I wonder whether it's, it's the, I guess, the, the appeal or the lure of, of doing uh, trading on a full-time basis where you're manually looking at things and, and want to, to get the, the adrenaline hit or something like that. Even yeah. though um, I think most people acknowledge that doing it in a, in a rules-based or having a, a computer-aided uh, trading strategies is, is a lot more consistent. Well, I think consistent. part of the romantic allure of trading yes. is it's a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm -hmm. right? So they'll get in and out of something, it'll do sensationally well, and they'll buy a stock today, it'll go up 10% in the next three days, and they'll sell it and move on again and get a phenomenal return on their capital. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it works like that. Now, in, in the money world, you know, there's, there's, there's two ways. There's the short-term trading approach mm -hmm. and there's the longer-term investment approach. And philosophically, they're, they're poles apart. Uh, an investment is more about really understanding a company and selecting it for its quality. So, I mean, a trader will buy a stock and they're looking uh, at nothing more than the time series history of its price and the volume of stock sold and they're inferring things about what the rest of the market thinks about whether it's likely to uh, to be a hot stock based on how it's gone in the last two or three days yes an investor is saying what does this company do imagine i was going to buy not a few shares but the whole company i would want to know what it makes or what service it provides i want to know how long it's been in business who set it up what's their personal cvs yep um, who are its competitors? What is it that gives this company an edge in the market? Why will it continue to do well in the future? If it's not doing well now, is the market underpriced and it has potential to do better later when, when the market comes to realise that this is a much better company than they think it is now? That's more the sort of Warren Buffett value yes. investment approach. Correct. And I'm drawn to that. Yes. As, as making more sense. It, it pays dividends, stock prices rise, it's a slow patient business, but the results can be um, spectacular and, and um, more worthwhile than trading, which can be very hit and miss. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and I, I, I have to confess, I have, I'm a fan of value investing as well. Um, uh, not, definitely not anywhere near as... as um, as active uh, as you are in the sense of uh, picking specific companies, but I do, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett and I do follow him in, in <coughs> good. And, um, and for, for that reason, I, um, I got into, into Vanguard and the index fund. ETFs. Um, 
the ETFs. Mm -hmm. That's right, based on on um, the bet that he made with with their hedge fund manager in 2007 to see he was there was a million dollar. Uh, I'm sure you you know this, but there was a million dollar bet to see what was going to give better return uh, over a 10 year period, starting in 2007. And the and Warren Buffett said that an index fund, an ETF with low fees and where you buy the whole market, that was going to outperform anything that anyone else picked. And you mean an actively managed fund? Um, and the, the, the other side, yes. Would well, be you've got active. to manage chopping and changing and analyzing stocks and moving money from this stock to that stock and charging higher fees for it. That's mm. right. And that's what the, um, the guy who took up the bet, he, he was a hedge fund manager. Mm. And um, I think in his mind to be safe, he picked a fund of funds, right? So um, a, a group of five um, hedge funds that each one was made of, of a bunch of hedge funds. And he said that this, this group of hedge funds would do better than, than a passively uh, managed fund, the, the Vanguard one. And I, I think a year before the bet um, was supposed to finish, which was um, you know at the start of this year, uh, end of last year, they they called it. They had to call it because the the Vanguard ETF, uh, being passively managed, had a return of I think about sixty five or sixty six percent over the ten years, <laughs> and the hedge fund was about a third of that. Mm, mm, uh, and mm. a lot of it it was the the fees that they take and etc. Uh, but so that's that's been uh, that's been my approach, which is sort of the the lazy way to value investing, I guess, the uh, buying the index. But how, how did you get into, uh, into the value investing that, you, that you're doing now? Well, when I decided to start investing, and I, you know, I knew nothing about it. And, yes. um, you know, I made a trip to a technical bookstore and came home armed with things and, and spoke to other people who were in the space to, to see what they were reading. Um, and it, it just resonated with me as being a a more sensible way forward, that it, that it had a rigorous base to it, you know, that it wasn't... Um, to me, technical trading seemed more like um, voodoo, you know, and, and, and black art. But, yes. Um, simply making predictions about something will do better tomorrow because it did okay yesterday. I'd, if, I'd, I'd, but to me, that's not something I would trust or feel comfortable about, even for the very short term. And so I wasn't prepared to, to put money into markets based on that. Whereas looking at the fundamentals of who is it we're investing in and why do we think it should do well um, made a lot of sense. And it's just a question of then acquiring technique um, and, and knowledge as to how to do it. Mm -hmm. That's what led me back to where I am now. You know, I was doing it on a case by case basis for individual companies and going nuts trying to do all the work. Yes. When I'm, it's, it's interesting too, if you look at published research, there's any amount of this that um, various data research and stockbroking companies will release. But if you go back and look at how good it is, you know that they'll have their recommendations on companies as buy, sells and holds. And yes. if you were to go and actually trade on that, uh, and this isn't an exercise I've personally done, but I, I tend to discount their, their, their recommendations because you know nothing at all about their investment philosophies and how they've come to these conclusions. And therefore, on, on the basis of that, why would you trust them? Correct.
Yeah, completely agree. And I, and I, and I like the, the theme of um, that you have, I think in general, which is like get deeper knowledge into the areas that you're, that you're interested in. Mm. And um, in, in that, have you, this is just a curiosity question, but have you gone back and, and uh, replicated the, the investments or trying to predict the investments that Warren Buffett has made over the years or other value investors? Well, no, because he's operating in different markets. I'm working in Australia, uh-huh. and, and so I don't have the data sets, uh, yes. to, uh, nor do I know specifically what he's actually done. Um, I, I don't know if that's on public record. I mean, we know about um, the big wins and things because it attracts press. Correct. But not in my new time, everything that he's done, no. no. Yes, no, no. That's, that's, that's fair. Mm. And um, are, there, are there any... I guess, um, famous or publicly known value investors in, in Australia that are... I think there will be a lot, but uh-huh. what, what tends to happen is that when someone's successful and they have a good way of doing this, they don't go and publicise it. Correct. <laughs> they, they just sit there and do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. And I think, of, yeah, it's definitely the, the same with data science. Once you have an edge, you, mm. you want to um, almost keep it quiet in the in the way that you apply it but obviously the the research is so you have to be really skeptical about people that publish books on how to apply machine learning to predictions Mm -hmm. you know to to stock market or or financial market predictions because you'd say you know if they really know how to do it they wouldn't be publishing this book they'd be keeping that ip for themselves or trying to license or patent that ip rather than telling the world about how best to do it Correct, mm. correct. And um, yeah, I think that they generally try to hint that there's more that they know, but they're not giving it away. Yeah. Um, but then what is the, the reasons why they're willing to give away what they... Well, what yeah, they so, no, I've seen a lot of that where they've, they've got what appear to be reasonable ideas, but they've, they've come unstuck somewhere or they would have just gone off and made their billions quietly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So generally trying to write the book is a way of getting something out of it. Exactly right. Yes, and um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about the, the software that you're that you're working on at the moment. Okay, so I've I've decided to be a quant. I've assembled a database of uh, now of at the Australian stock market, mm-hmm. and my my early in, endeavour. What I wanted to do is to go back to the principles of value investment and say, well. What I'm going to do is leave out all the uh, qualitative stuff. You know, I'm not going to read the annual reports. I'm not going to look at who runs the company and consider their personal profiles. I'm going to ignore the data um, about what the company's prospects are and who its competitors are. I'm just going to look at data mining and its financials and say, are there signals buried in the financials? And in, you know, and and looking back over its histories and combining that with how its price is performing. Are there signals there that are too hard to, to manually spot? You know, we, as human beings, we can only find signals in a very small number of parameters. But it's possible that there are signals that might be spread over 30 or 40 or more parameters mm-hmm. buried in the financial histories. And that's what machine learning is good at, going and discovering whether those, those patterns exist. So um, th- there's a bit of black art in this, you know, in, in how we formulate 
the input vector to feed into training a neural network. You know, we have a supervised data set, that's great. So it ought to be a straightforward application of a, of a now mature technology. Well, it isn't. You know, that I, I tried saying, well, I'll take the entire set of uh, financials and I'll let the network decide if, if there are parameters in there that are of no interest to it, it'll mm -hmm. just set zero link weights on those and it'll move on. But if you want to train it, in a realistic time and you want to be able to reproduce these models quickly you need a smarter approach than that and you need to generate um, other data features as well by combining some of the fundamentals that are published in, in, into new ones you know you need to be creative in um, coming up with descriptive parameters by you know I'll multiply these and divide by those and take this one to the log of that one and things yes. like that and you know, it's not always obvious what these are. So basically you just invent things that might seem plausible and then you, you throw it into a network and decide. I found that letting the network decide for itself, which, of you know, I'd come up with a big family of things that it could use and say, well, pick a subset and see how it goes and train yourself on that. And then by coming up with a metric, as I mentioned before, for deciding whether or not it was doing something useful, I could combine parts of its performance on, on out-of-sample data, you know, historical really, but out-of-sample as far as the training set was concerned, mm -hmm. to say, well, how did you perform? You know, did you come up with something useful or not? And that's, that's quite interesting. You know, I came up with um, useful percentages, 60% plus, um, uh, you know, classification accuracies that is the basis for... A, a prediction engine. That's great. Fantastic. I thought, well, I'm finished. I'll start trading now. Yes. And then I thought, well, how best do I use these to, um, you know, to actually invest? And that's not a trivial question. Actually, I thought it was a trivial question. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if it comes up with predictions, you expect them to be right enough. If you buy a portfolio of things, you spread your money across them, then some of them will underperform, some of them will massively overperform. Um, what's the problem? Well, you think about all the things that can happen when you invest in a stock, right? Say I put $100 in a stock, what might happen? Um, it might just stay at $100 and do nothing. It might go up to $200 and I'll be happy. It might fall to $50 and I'll be disappointed. What do I do in each of those cases, right? If it does nothing, mm -hmm. do I just reassess, well, what does the network think it will do now and just let the money stay there? Or do I sell it and, 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 and just say, well, that was a mistake, I'll put, I'll put the capital in something else and try again. If it falls to $50, do I write off my losses? Um, or do I uh, insist that I need to get my money back and I, and I hold it? Um, if it goes up a lot, what should I do? Should I take my profit off the table or take back my initial capital and reinvest in something else? So there's a whole lot of policies that then come into play. And when you think through all the things that can happen, you find that there are lots of corners or states, the big state space that it can fall into. And as you start to map it out, you realise you've actually got a lot of levers to adjust and, and, and uh, different things that can happen. There's a surprisingly large number of these things. And so I started manually searching through this space and saying, well, I'll set the levers like this. And I was running around adjusting all these levers like a guy running a, you know, a big train set or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then finding that, well, actually, when I went and back-tested my way through this over a, you know, a long history, you know, 10, 10 years plus of, of, of trading, 
the, the actual returns could be spectacularly good or just really disappointing and average. So that's, I thought, an area that needs more research. So that's what I'm thinking about now. I, and I haven't actually started trading with this yet, even though I've got a good prediction engine. Yes. Until I understand how to use these predictions better. Now, I think that what I've done then is to say, there's two parts of the problem. And I think a lot of people don't do this. What, what a lot of people trading in stock markets are doing is essentially setting up policies. Their, their trading algorithm is to follow a policy. I will buy companies that have this profile and I will keep them for a certain time. Sometimes their algorithm is I will buy them and hold them for one year and I will always sell them exactly after one year and then I will buy another set that have the same property at that time. Mm -hmm. That is all they are doing. What I'm doing is saying I'm taking my machine learning to find companies that I think will meet whatever metric I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, maybe an increase of value by some percentage over some period of time, right? And having reached those classifications, what am I going to do with them? So the trading algorithm is a different problem to the prediction engine. Yes. I think that's unusual. Yes. Don't you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because in at least in general, what I've what I've seen is that people have they go back to rules on the um, on the trading side, even though after they have the I guess the machine learning prediction on on um, on which companies the the algorithm think they're going to be going up after that. Most people that I've seen, they, they implement simple rules again yeah. so to say, if I'm getting, you know, these three parameters above a certain level, then I will take this, That's this right. prediction and I'll go ahead That's with right. it. Yes, but I've, I've seen very little on the, on the approach that you're, that you're talking about. So, uh, what, what I'm saying is, well, there must be a more rigorous way of approaching this. There, there, there must be a way of seeking to optimise. Simply trading on policies, um, it's, 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 well, it has the advantage of being simple. We have data sets that we can backtest and maybe they're satisfied to say, well, I can on average achieve a total return of so many percent and if I can achieve that, it's better than I can do with any other way of investing my money so, I'm, so I'll be a happy man and end of story. But it's actually a really simplistic thing to do. You know? And I think there's potential to do a hell of a lot better than that. And that's why I'm going to all this trouble and spending a lot of time plotting through all this protracted software development. Correct. That's right. Um, which it must be also um, really interesting as well. Like to... It is. There are lots of challenges along the way and, and there's lots of things that are quite, quite, quite difficult to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. and, and uh, the problem attracts you as well. The sol yeah. solving of this problem as well as the, yep. um, I guess, the, the financial upside that, that could happen. Now, maybe there's hedge funds out there that have done all this, but, you know, as I was saying before, if they have, they're not going to tell you. Correct. And they don't publish, you know. So anyone else that wants to do it has to go and reinvent. That's right. That's exactly right. Mm. And what are you doing your, your development in or your coding? Um, I'm using a MATLAB-like language called Octave, oh, yes. uh, which is great for uh, rapid prototyping. I love it because 
It comes with really good um, quant-based uh, algorithms, you know, a really rich library of um, very powerful um, algos that pre-exist. So you can, you know, you can vectorize things and, and do complicated things blindingly fast. Um, it's great. That's excellent. That's excellent. How long have you using have you been using Octave for? Well, I I was actually introduced to, to the Coursera uh, uh -huh. course on machine learning. Uh, whereas they use that for all the exercises and I thought, you know, this is so good, I'm just going to stick with it. And I discovered everybody else uses things like Python and I thought, well, I can't see a, a, a good reason to move away from this. So that everything I'm doing is in the rapid prototyping category at the moment. That doesn't mean yes. I can't write robust, rigorous, uh, professional quality code and my experience in uh, my former business of writing uh, financial simulators, you know, I know what it, I need to write good code. And the thing is, when you come back, you know, you build up a lot of code quickly as, as, as you do this development. And it's got so many corners and so much complexity that after a few months, when you come back to a bit of it, you've forgotten yes. the ins and outs. So it has to be, it, 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 it has to self-enforce a whole lot of procedural rules about how to use it or you just get in a complete mess and end up corrupting your database and producing rubbish results. So, uh, it, sure, it slows me down as a team of one to go and be patient enough to write all this petty-fogging detail level stuff, but I think it's an, um, a, a good return on, on my time and effort overall uh, to feel confident when I come back and use parts of it again after maybe a gap of two years that um, it'll look after itself. Yeah, that's right. Ah, that is that is really good. <laughs> and uh, before you mentioned that in that you said in the last sixty years or so, machine learning became ready for for the applications such as ready for prime one. time. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, uh, why do you think that that is the case, and what is the change that that you saw during that time? Well, I think um, the prevalence of data um, has improved. The algos have continued to be developed. We've seen a, a much greater emphasis of people wanting to write um, commercial grade um, implementations of major algorithms and provide APIs to them to actually make them useful. Um, you know, with the in initiatives like uh, TensorFlow and things like that, it's becoming easy for people to do these things. Uh, so if you have any sort of data set, you can throw it at an algo and next to no time and get a result. It, you know, it, it wasn't like that in the past. You had to sit down and hand code everything on a from scratch basis. So I think that gives people a bit of a leg up to get started. Well, I'd have to say that, you know, I'm using uh, neural nets in, in my own work, but the, the actual program code for the neural net is rather short. You know, it's, there's not really a lot to it, you know, just, just to do the, the flow forward computation of feeding a vector in one end, um, doing all the multiplies, feeding them into neurons, computing outputs, feeding it on and, and so forth. That's not really very hard to do. Uh, the complexity is what do we do everything around it, you know, how we generate the sets, um, how, how we know that they're good. How, how we implement our metrics, do our training and all of these things that constitute the bulk of the project. In a sense then, 
the pre-existing packages don't really give you much of a leg up for that. That they give you the basic black box. And I, and I guess that's why I think people really need to understand what the black box is, is doing so they can understand all the other things that they need to do to, to get real value out of it. That's right. That's exactly right. And what do you think is a, is a good way for people to, to gauge whether they have enough knowledge about the, the black box? Because I think a lot of people avoid it because they think, okay, once I start looking into the black box, it's going to be more of a black hole, and it's just well, going yeah. To be never ending. Uh, I I think people are generally are too trusting. Uh, they're not skeptical enough. You know, mm -hmm. they need to be more curious about what does this thing actually do. You know, if if I'm going to trust it and it's going to be the core of my my project, and I'm going to base decisions on this, and I'm going to put real money on the table. Personally, I wouldn't do it unless I understood what was happening in that black box to give me warm feelings that it was valid. So I think, um, you know, challenge everything, really, and, and um, you need to take the trouble to understand the theory behind it. And uh, <coughs> it, it, it is something of a barrier because to, for all members of a project team to go and do the necessary training and, and spend several weeks um, doing uh, like university level training in a, in a specialised topic like that might not be what every manager wants to commit his team to. Mm -hmm. But in data science, you know, I think there are some fundamentals that you just have to be reasonably expert at. The other one that we haven't mentioned, of course, is just general stats, you know, and you say, what's the difference really between what we're doing with machine learning and the classical approaches of just using statistics? Aren't we really just looking at the same thing from different vantage points? And I think, really, you you should, you must have that expertise in a good data science project. You've 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 got to have a um, a stats approach to saying, am I designing? Well, in stats, we call it a you know a, a valid ex experiment. You know, basically, we have a hypothesis that we can look at the data in certain ways and draw conclusions from it. But if you don't understand how to design an experiment and, and how to draw from your data and, and, and come to those conclusions, well, you haven't really got anything. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And what do you see as the, the difference between, between machine learning and statistics? Well, machine learning is more of a dynamic, um, sort of industrial scale way of, of doing um, finer grain, more specialised things in particular problem domains. So with, you know, with stats, there, there are a few stats that we can generate about things like, you know, means and variances and, and ways of doing hypothesis testing and so forth. But they're kind of um, a limited and blunt instrument that we can't apply them in the same way to say, I want to make a prediction or I want to classify companies in the stock market saying these are similar or these are the ones that I think I should avoid or these are the ones that I think will do well. Uh, we can to some extent, but they're not, it's not quite the right approach. It's not going to give us the freedom of movement to do exactly what we want to do. So there's definitely a role for the, the algos like uh, the machine learnings that, that, that give us that more direct, finer grain um, control and access to what we want out of the data. Yeah, exactly. Great. And there's, um, 
I had some some questions here that I wanted to to discuss with you. Sure. And let me know if we've if we've covered um, a few points around these. And uh, the first one was, uh, what do you think? Um, what do you think applying data science to to trading uh, and, and investing in markets is is so so attractive? Well, I sort of alluded to that before in that um, the way I first started to do it was intensively thinking about individual companies. And that was a lot of work to deal with one entity at a time. Now, ideally, as, as a trader or investor, you would like to be able to consider what are the best opportunities on market at the moment. And so that really necessitates um, a way of looking at a universe of stocks in the same time that I was applying to, to looking at stocks one by one. And so what I was really interested in saying is, how can I use data science techniques then to automate this? I would like to turn the handle on the machine and the machine will then look at not just at one company, but the entire market. And it will do the same thing in a consistent, repeatable way to, to everything and all at once. Now I might restrict the universe of stocks that I would be prepared to invest in on you know, various ways. There'll be, um, for example, liquidity requirements. I want to know if mm -hmm. I buy a stock, it's possible to sell that stock. Right? So there'll be certain things that I will rule out. And there'll be other criteria as well, that past behaviour of companies might, there'll be some that I'll say, well, that's got a black mark and I would never trade in a company that does something like that. So I might omit certain things, but I would like, of, of the universe of stocks that is left, which can be many hundreds in the Australian stock market then, a way of being able to, whenever I feel like it, say, let's, let's just reevaluate how the whole market's going now and, and let's apply that to finding new things that I can buy, looking at the things that I'm already holding and deciding um, whether I think they, they, they're going to do well or go badly, so making decisions about selling some of them and actively thinking about the whole position. So what I'm talking about is scalability, moving from one stock to the whole market. I'm talking about repeatability. I'm talking about taking all the emotion out of the process too because the machine will always do the same thing the same way. And what I've noticed is a lot of people who start to dabble in trading when their system comes up um, with, with a recommendation, you know, put 50% of your money in this stock and say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> right? So they're trying to automate it, but then they're letting emotion get in the way and saying, oh, no, that's too high a risk. No, 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 it's wrong. I'll override it. That's right. You can't override it. You've, you know, there's no point in doing this if you won't actually do what it tells you to do. So the, for me, the, the, the whole joy of this is I put my energy into creating the system and I will slavishly do what it tells me to do yes. without thinking about it. And if it goes bad, I, I have to guarantee to myself I'm not going to feel bad about that. Correct. Right? That, uh, and I'm not going to do it in a way that can um, drive me bankrupt. Right? Yeah, correct. At, at, at worst, and, and basically, um, if you can't afford to take some loss, don't do this. Yes. <laughs> Go and do something else. That's so true. Um, but I think that, that I think that your approach is so it's so good because it's comprehensive in the sense of you're doing both sides of what people usually only want to do one. They don't want to put in the work. What I mean by that is 
you were doing the financial analysis by hand through mm. you know the hard yards doing one company yeah. at a time and after gaining a good amount of experience with that you said let's take this to scale and yeah. let's automate it uh, from from what i've seen is people want to start in one of those camps mm. i've seen people starting on, mm. on both of them mm. and they generally only stay in the camp that they started in yeah so they either either keep doing things manually yeah or they want to be completely automated mm. without understanding the details and the intricacies mm. that you have to work out through through the manual side what are the benefits that you see to the approach of of having done both or doing both well i think it gives a much uh, better perspective of the of the pros and cons of the two extremes and my starting point was to look at the specialized spreadsheets I'd come up with, which would give me like um, a process flow for how I would look at an individual stock. And to say, well, okay, well, there are things in here that require qualitative judgments that I will omit because they're not appropriate to the quantitative approach, right? Or maybe some of them could be to some degree because you can always, you know, process text and extract many with machine learning, but I'm not trying to do that. I'd mm-hmm. say that's more ambitious. So, if you pick out the, mere, the merely quantitative parts, the things that are based on hard financial facts and you always do it in the same way, then you can generate algorithms around that. So that was the starting point. Then there's a whole lot of published work. There, there are a large number of uh, textbooks out there um, of what quantitative financial analysts do, what they found at work. And I think, well, that's kind of interesting too. And that, that, if you like, gives you guidance on how to do your search, gives you guidance on how to set these policies that we were talking about, you know, trading algorithms as search policies, basically, which is what um, a, a, a lot of people do in the absence of any other obvious path forward. And that is often what quantitative finance is. Mm-hmm. Search policies are applied on a market-wide basis. Yes. So um, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of the extremes, you know, I've, I've taken bits of what I first started with, combining it with um, search-based criteria and, and trying to tie the whole thing together. It's, it's excellent. It's yeah. really good. And what do you think about the, the fundamental problem that markets are highly sensitive to external factors. I know we, we sort of touched on this before, but I, yep, did, I yep. did want to ask in case you had um, anything else. How can we make useful predictions when there's so much externality there? Well, I, I, I think there's a, uh, a, a, a few things we can do there. One of them is to uh, add in data features that are based on market behaviors as, as, as a whole, you know, that, um, we can model sentiment in various ways and feed those in as additional data factors that the model can take into account. So the model can look at things if we're progressing, you know, as the weeks are passing and it's saying, hmm, I'm noticing that um, there's a lot of volatility in- increasing here um, and that certain measures of aggregates, like indexes of how funds are going, um, are changing, and that, that can be a trigger for, to change behaviour. So what I'm saying is we've got all the things about a company, we've got a vector of information about a particular company, and then we can augment that with a vector of how the whole market is travelling. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and 
in, in general, how much, how much importance does, does value investing give to, um, to the feeling that the public has about, about a company? Absolutely none. Yeah. And that's one of the magic of uh, value investing because, um, you know, uh, there's a quote uh, from, I think, Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett likes that, you know, in the short term, um, the, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. So nice. you know, people respond to the panic. They, they sell things down. They uh, sell a stock for much less than its intrinsic value. Well, the classic value investment is about computing an intrinsic value based on discounted cash flows of what a company pays its investors. I'm not trying to do that at all. <laughs> Right. Yes. Uh, so my take on quantitative value investment is completely different. I discard the concept of um, intrinsic value uh, in the sense of something we compute from returns. Um, and there are a lot of problems with that because we've got to make expectations about um, how we think those returns will lie in, you know, this year, next year, the year after that. And there are too many imponderables. So it's not really consistent with the fundamentals of the data science technology that we have to bring to the table. Yes. But there are other things we can do that are not inconsistent with the broader philosophy of um, value investing. Mm -hmm. so we, you know, again, what we are saying is that there is a lot of information, there is a lot of knowledge that is buried within the financials, and our challenge is to uncover that in a useful way then and to generate um, trading signals definitely and that's what you were saying that a lot of a lot of time and I think creative energy is spent on on the data preparation or data engineering side about creating different types of, of metrics or ratios yep. that can be fed to, yep. to the to create network. additional data features yeah yeah and yes right yeah, to, no? to create additional data features so it requires a lot of domain expertise so to me the challenge isn't about having a lot of programming results but about having a lot of domain expertise and being able to creatively and successfully apply that. That's why I'm trading as a one-man band at the moment. Yeah. You know, maybe the sort of work that I'm doing um, could fit into a hedge fund. Um, I don't know whether uh, hedge funds do it quite like this. I think they tend not to from, 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 from what I have read and from people that I've met at conferences and, and spoken to. They tend to be looking at much simpler, more direct strategies. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, no, it's good. I really like the way that you're going about it. Mm. And um, in the in the use of, of neural networks and, and obviously like the, the current state of neural networks being deep, deep learning, um, how do you balance that? In, uh, what, how do you think about it in having a, a deep network with data preparation and data engineering? Because in, in the reason why I ask is because in my mind, the the benefit that we've gained from deep neural networks is the fact that the network is doing data preparation for you in that, in that depth. Uh, and and my, my current view, and this is why, I'm, I'm obviously it may, it may change, but I'm keen to, to hear your, your opinion. My current view is that the, the additional layers that we've added to, to neural networks, they, they do more data preparation and that the, the final layers yeah. um, do, do more of the, of the model. Well, 
let, let me respond to that. Yeah. Um, firstly, deep learning is a, it's a bit of a vague term, you know, and generically, it really just means something like a neural network. It tends to be taken to being a multi-layer network that has a, a larger number of layers. Now, for some problems like um, vision processing, um, that makes a lot of sense because what we're doing is we're getting deeper into the layers is recognizing higher and higher uh, levels of semantic meaning. You know, we're constructing yes. things. So we're starting with pixels and then we're finding edges and we're extracting um, features that can build up our knowledge of types of animals or faces of individual people and, and things like that. And I'm not sure that this applies generally to other domains. And um, in, in, in my own work, I've experimented with different network architectures and I favour simpler, shallower networks. Uh -huh. I, f I find there is, I haven't really found that the features exist in, in the same way, that it is justified to search for things that we need to build bigger building blocks. You know, the, the, the analogy of, you know, edges and then shapes and then the meta things constructed of those shapes. Uh, maybe they exist in, in financial markets, but I'm not, I'm not sure that they do. And, and so simpler networks have the profound advantage that we can generate them and train them much faster. Exactly. And if they're adequate, why go further? Yes. Yes. I might be completely wrong and missing something, but that's my thinking at the moment. Well, yeah, maybe or maybe not, but that's, that's a, a really, really great, great view. And um, have, you, have you done any, um, any comparison between the, the two approaches? So Yeah, yeah I have, uh, to, to varying degree, but I wouldn't claim that it's rock solid science mm -hmm. as yet because I haven't done it enough. Right? Yeah. But my, my feeling was when I played with building deeper, more complex networks that I wasn't getting benefit. Yes. And then went back to simpler structures. And, you know, there was a massive a cost of doing that because um, they're harder and slower to train. And exactly. you have so many uh, decisions to make. I mean, um, basically, if you're building a deep multi-layer network, you've got to make profound decisions about how many neurons you're putting in each layer and how many layers you've got this combinatorial explosion of complexity that goes with it. And you, you know, there's, there's got to be a readily identifiable payoff to uh, justify doing that. And I couldn't find that, or I haven't found that yet. So uh, I'm, I'm tending to stay away from that, to go for shallower networks and to just to experiment. Uh, the, one of the things, you know, is we randomize link weights, mm -hmm. also randomize uh, network architectures and in, in, in saying, I don't really have um, a strong view as to how complex a network I need to solve a particular problem. So I'll, I'll just generate large numbers of them and evaluate all of them. Yes. And if, I can, if I can generate them and evaluate them fast enough, um, then it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll find some that, that meet my metrics and I'll keep those ones and throw away all the other ones that I tried along the way. Correct. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the approach that Google is taking with um, one of their products I think they're calling it auto ML, where they wanted to generate, you know, machine learning that creates machine learning, and, mm. and the the premise behind that is is that. Um, but I really I really like your your approach of of encoding uh, the knowledge that is out there, encoding it 
um, yourself and making and making all the the features and then getting creative with the features because that's that's something that you don't you can you can hit upon something that nobody else has done yeah. or that nobody else has tried to this degree. Yeah. Uh, well, you know anyone can use a, an auto ML product mm. and um, and get to similar outcomes. So that's that's really really good. Um, another thing that that I had for you is. Uh, is there, is there life beyond the sample? We've spoken about backtesting and that is great, um, but so many endeavors fall over when they go live with out-of-sample data. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've spoken about some of this already that um, certainly, you know, beginners to the area make lots of mistakes with how they do their training and they either under or over-train with the result that when they apply uh, their network to data it hasn't seen before, that it, it's just spectacularly bad. Yes. And you, you, when you look at the classification, the classification results, it's, you know, it, it just seems to be random. It's of no use um, whatsoever. And, um, you know, when, when I started in this space, I wrote a neural network and I said, my goodness, it's right 95% of the time. Hmm. This is fantastic, I'll make a fortune. <laughs> Let's do some out of sample testing. Oh, it's no better than random, you know? And that, 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 that was quite an arresting um, discovery to make me think much more deeply about how you quarantine your data sets, how you uh, divide up your available uh, data, what approach you take uh, to testing with various subsets of the data that's available. And that made me think about, I need a metric to decide whether or not this is doing something useful. And to stop and think about that for a few weeks and to say, right, I need to build into my training process. When I'm, when I'm you know, I create a, uh, a neural net on a more or less randomised basis, but when I test it, when I train it, I, I need to evaluate it against metrics other than um, merely its least squares error type, type approach. You know? yes. so I, you know, I think that's the way we, we, we escape from within the sample to get outside the sample with something that's of some sense of generality. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, if we're reserving some of our data to do a form of out-of-sample testing while we're training in-sample, then we're kind of limiting the applicability of our model to having a lifetime because some of the data, but the data is only produced over time, okay? So some of the time we've reserved for training what happened in the past, mm -hmm. and that means there is necessarily going to be a gap between whatever model we come up with, with how old that model is when it starts to look at what's happening now. So there's a bit of balance required here to uh, optimise this. We don't want a model that's too old to now be applicable to the market, because markets change in character all of the time. Look at the markets. I'm, I'm working in the Australian stock market, and its characteristics are very different to the market of 10 years ago or five years ago or 20 years ago. So, you, you know, I don't think we, that we generate a model on a once-and-for-all basis and just use it indefinitely. You know, in, in, in my work, one of the things I've been interested in is how long is a model valid for? Does its classification accuracy fall off over time? And you actually go and do plots of things like that and, and to say, well, I need to regenerate it from time to time. I'm not quite sure how often yet, but I would go and find out and then make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. So, um, 
it's on doing things like that and, and struggling to say what are the what are good metrics that indicate whether or not the model is over or under training. What other metrics do I do I have to say that this is a good or bad model? And combining all these things together to say this is a good model, but it has a lifetime. I can use it until certain things change or certain things happen. And then I need to find another model and keep going. That's right. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, and do you think that you'll be automating that um, that process and yeah, I, I, have, I have. Oh, you I, have already. Yeah, yeah. I, I made it part of the training strategy right mm -hmm. from the start. And say that this needs to be something that's in, inherent or, or, or a key part of the overall process. It's not something I want to manually evaluate because, again, that would be um, lacking scale, it's not repeatable, it wouldn't be done consistently. And, and the whole beauty of this is to come up with something that's truly hands-free that you just let the thing run. That's why it takes a long time to do the development because it's doing a lot of things other than just training a neural net. That's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really good, that's mm -hmm. really good. Um, and you, you mentioned that, um, and obviously, the, the, way, the way that we met was through, through your meetup yeah. group, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and you, you said you started it as a, as a way to, to meet people uh, that well, are interested in the space. Okay, so you know, here I am, I'm living and working in Melbourne, Australia. Yes. It's a big city of, I don't know, four or five million people. Yes. And we have hedge funds that are based in Melbourne, mm -hmm. and we have a lot of data scientists in Melbourne, and there must be a lot of uh, quantitative finance people. And there'll be a lot of people who are interested in exploring an intersection in between finance and new technologies like uh, machine learning. So I wanted to put together a group uh, to see just who was around and what their interests and expertise were. I was interested in providing education and I was interested in finding potential collaborators uh, to work on my projects with me as well. So when I started this, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could find, you know, 50 like-minded individuals who might like to do this? So I put the group up, you know, one Sunday afternoon and went out to lunch. And by the time I'd finished my lunch, I was getting emails back from the meetup server to say, hey, eight people have joined. Hey. I thought, wow, that's great. I'll have to schedule an actual event soon. Anyway, within the next 24 hours, I had over 50 people to join. And I thought, oh, I've definitely got to set something up. And it just kept growing. And yes. uh, now, now we've got um, oh, about 900 people who have wow. joined up to the group. Great. And um, you know, when we have an event, we, you know, we get a good number of people um, actually turn up. So you know, it's, it's a dynamic uh, little group. And um, I found the real value of it is in um, not so much the events, but the networking that occurs around it and the sort of people who come along I find it really interesting to see who's out there, what they're doing. Um, a lot of people I've met with one-on-one -on -one to understand their projects and talk about it. And it's also good for you know, informing and reinforcing my own work and um, getting to see what else is happening. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. No, it's, it's a really great thing that, that you're doing for the community. And um, yeah, I've, I've gone uh, to a number of those meetups and they're, they're always great. The people there are really engaged. And mm. uh, as you said, it's, it has the, the knowledge component with the presentations, but then the networking is also, also yep. really, really great. Yep. Really great. Mm. Um, that's, that's excellent. And um, 
So just, just to, uh, to wrap up, I wanted to ask you um, a couple of, I guess, more rapid fire questions sure. around, around um, data science, maybe in general. And what, what do you think makes a great, a, a great data scientist? Well, I think thinking about the specific challenges of the particular domain, you know, and sitting down and designing a project to think about the skill sets that you actually need. You know, any, any computer science project's going to need um, an analysis and domain expertise, but in, in data science, um, there's a lot of programming, but the special needs are things like stats, you know, to really inform it. These days, without a good awareness of AI in general and machine learning in particular, uh, you're probably not going to get that far. Uh, yes. You know, I think designing a, a project team to really think about what are the key roles, what do I really need in, in this team, mm -hmm. and how can I keep this team as small as possible? Yes. Uh, probably some of the key things. Yeah. Yes. I really, I really like that that you that you brought that up um, now and earlier in the conversation around a small team and the quick and dirty solutions mm. until until this confidence that you've mm. struck mm. gold. Uh, I think that's mm. absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, and what, what are some of the, um, the current challenges that you see in, in data science? Well, I think I put them into two camps, uh, social and, and technical. Uh -huh. I think social is we get larger and larger scale and wider acceptance of uh, data science. Our, our privacy is being compromised, right? And we want to make sure we don't actually create Big Brother. I think mm. in some societies we're seeing uh, it becoming quite pervasive. Um, and a lot of what's happening now is probably what people would have regarded as just unacceptable. And now if we want to move forward and do things, we just have to accept that we're going to have to compromise um, on knowledge of our identities, where we live, how we live, what we do. Um, banks, um, companies like Airbnb and, and so forth just insist on knowing a lot about us that personally I would have found uncomfortable in the past and I now have to accept. Mm. Right? People are willing to use Facebook and LinkedIn and give a lot of information about themselves. So they're risking loss of their own identities to a large degree. Yes. But more and more, if we put things in cloud servers too, you know, things that we create, our ideas, our work, our intellectual property is also being compromised. Um, that's not so much by data science, I guess, but it's certainly a threat that's there as well. Uh, on the technical side, I think some of the challenges are, you know, just continuing to find more mature and, and, and faster algorithms. And um, I, I, I think keeping a clear vision that only certain things are possible. You know, there's the temptation to uh, extrapolate and presume that we can do things with data science where we can't. There are some processes that are just inherently chaotic and random. Yes. That no amount of analysis is going to find a meaningful pattern in. Now, human beings are great at finding patterns that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. That's great. Mm -hmm. And on the, on the social side that you mentioned, have you um, come, come across the data privacy laws that they put in Europe recently? 
Oh, I'm, I'm, no? not, I'm not particularly well yeah. informed. No, 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 it's, it's, it's all good. They're, they're being very strict on, on, on the data privacy around who, who can have access to data um, and specifically of data of European citizens, where that data is stored, who has access and, and what type of uh, anonymization needs to go through the data. So I'm, I'm keen to see that. It's very new, but I'm keen to see how that happens with, um, with the big tech companies and how they... It's interesting, isn't it? It's still like America is the Wild West who just get out there and do things with less respect for that, but old Europe is more conservative and will slow things down and want to break up big companies and put in place better data protection acts and things like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. And um, the, the last question, mm. what, what do you see upcoming in the, in the future of data science? Well, I think there's lots of things. There's so many new sources of data now, um, you know, from Internet of Things, um, from ordinary things like our cars generating much more data, um, health apps generating much more data, uh, basically processes of all kinds. So it's going to be much more pervasive. We're going to have an easier integration of all these data streams and the ability to use them in ways that we're only just beginning to imagine. Um, I think quantitative methods, therefore, are going to become much more uh, important and much more endemic into everything we do. Uh, We're already starting to see uh, degrees offered in new specialisations in some of the online training courses like I think Udacity are now offering uh, nano degrees in driverless cars. That that is now a specialisation. And we'll probably see a lot more of that sort of thing happening over the uh, next few years. So what we think of now as data science and machine learning, we probably won't even classify it like that in the future because it's just so basic, it'll just be an inspected part of everything and the way the primary school kids are now learning programming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that future. I think it'll be really good. Hmm. Mark. Thank you so much for this. It's been so much fun speaking you with friend. you. Thank you. It's oh, been fun. It's been extremely interesting. So thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah. Great to have this chat and I hope we do it again soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Right. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.